0: This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's guest is Laura Jackson. Laura Jackson is a faith-friendly clinical therapist in Chicago, Illinois. She works with young adults and others in life transitions, supporting new tellings of old stories to create new possibilities. She helps people get and stay resilient and centered while engaging big systems like academia and the church. Welcome, Laura. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. So it's such a pleasure to have you in this space and and on the show, um, I know we've had a couple of opportunities to talk, but we haven't um, we haven't really talked in depth, and we haven't really talked recently. So why don't you start by telling folks a little bit more about what you do um, beyond the the piece that you submitted for your bio?
0: Uh, well, first I was just going to say uh, I don't know if you know this is my first podcast, so oh. uh, you're my first. So thank you for this invitation to do a new thing. Very cool. Um, I am actually professionally in transition right now. I'm coming out of several years of practicing uh, as a practicing therapist in Austin, Texas, which I loved, Um, working uh, largely with folks in the University of Texas Austin community, and um, also with an LGBTQ youth uh, clubhouse there in Austin. So big shout out to out youth. Um, the work that I was doing in Texas involved creating a couple of structures to get uh, better mental health care access to remove barriers to mental health care access in uh, academic, in the academic community, and also in local faith communities. And then, just as that was getting interesting, uh, my family packed up and moved to Chicago. And so I've been here about a year and a half, and I'm starting to rebuild my sense of the landscape and the, the context and the network and to see what that those same impulses might look like here. So I don't know yet. Maybe by the time this uh, podcast is released, I'll have more news. But <laughs> I'm, I'm st- I'm, what I'm doing is finding interesting people to collaborate with and having lots of conversations with them right now. And that's really fun and it's going really well. I don't have any uh, big results to report right now. So.
1: I think that's a, you know, it's fascinating because I think that's a really common thing that's happening for people right now, is they're they're like, I have a lot of energy, I feel pretty grounded, but I'm just not sure which direction I'm going yet. I was talking to a clergy colleague, actually, a few weeks ago, and we had the same kind of conversation. He was like, you know, usually I'm just go, 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 and I want to start something, and I just moved to a new part of the country, and so on and so forth, but I'm just... I feel like my call right now is to sit and wait in it.
0: Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. That's been, so I'm discernment is a huge regular part of my personal practice. I'm, uh, really like my first impulse is to sort of, uh, stop and reflect on what's, what can I what can my intuition tell me about what's happening and what to do next? And that, that process has become much more uh, refined and conscious over the last year or so of this transition, where I really know that it's not just, there is no normal routine. And so it's every day is like, okay, what would I do if I were me? You know, mm-hmm. so I'm, I have, gee, maybe there's three things I could do next today, which one seems like it goes first. And I'm just really honing that because I've had some, my time has been very unstructured. And that could, can sort of uh, mean falling into a puddle, you know, but my, my trust has been rewarded that ultimately it doesn't, that ultimately given no structure, I will start thinking of things that would be cool.
1: Because you're probably an intensive. Have you taken my assessment?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I'm right on the line. I'm sort that of, seems not, I'm intensive, but not very. I almost think, I mean, here comes a, a rat hole, but you know, in both um, studies of autism and studies of giftedness, uh, they're beginning to say, this is not a one line continuum it's like a starburst of ways you can be on a bunch of different axes and nobody is at the same point on all of them. So maybe you're like, you're a two over here and an eight over here. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I I mean, shockingly people vary and don't fit into one model for anything. (laughs) I think that's,
0: I wonder if there are some scales where you could say like, I'm very intensive at this, or I have this intensive quality in spades and this other intensive quality, not so much for me.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because when I developed the framework, one of my goals was to just describe this one set of characteristics because I have the experience of Enneagram, which I love, Myers-Briggs, which I love less, DISC, all, those, all the different personality assessments just try to cover too much ground. And so you can't use them. They're not useful in everyday discourse. They're not useful in everyday interactions because you have to be an expert in order to know what you're talking about. If I say that I'm a, well, I, in an enneagram, I, I tell people I'm a one-wing eight and I know that's not possible, but it is because here I am, um, which is pretty classically an intensive response to an assessment. But, right.
0: right, but Oh, that's really, that's really funny. Yes. Say, say that again. So uh, my son, who's 12, almost 13, who you and I have talked about before mm-hmm. in your parenting work, uh, the running joke in our house right now is this sort of call and response that came from him. And now we've all sort of adopted it as a rallying cry. His dad said to him, oh, no, he came out and said, can I, can I do blah, blah, blah? And his dad mm-hmm. said, no, don't do that. And he said, but I'm doing it right now. <laughs> so obviously, it's not true that I can't. You know, I'm doing it right now. And that we've just, after we cleaned up the mess from whatever it was he was doing right now, we, we really took on that that is super empowering. It's the bumblebee principle, right? It's like, yeah, you just said that I can't, but here I go. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny because when
1: when I wrote my book, I had to kind of plow through a bunch of imposter syndrome to get it written. But I also was aware because of Facebook, right, like uh, tools that authors didn't have 50 years ago, because of Facebook – I was able to know that what I was writing was somehow germane to people's lives, was somehow useful, was somehow supportive to people. And so it gave me the the little extra kick I needed to be like, well, I don't actually care if anybody thinks that I'm doing this wrong because clearly somebody <laughs> needs it. right? And then I was putting essays on my blog and some of those essays ended up in the book and that sort of thing. So. So there's this as intensives, right? There's this thing of, I'm just going to do it. And I, I have to believe that I can do it and blow off a bunch of naysayers because otherwise I'm never going to be myself.
0: Well, and you put that in a, I mean, I think the level of sort of uh, conscious rebellion that's involved in that varies, you know, I'm, I, I, the, the, clinical models that I created in Austin, um, I went around for a while trying to start a nonprofit, invite people to be on the board, you know, set up some structure and even people who loved me very much and were like-minded on a lot of things and had deep experience in the systems that I was working in would sort of look at me and say, but what's your business model? what's your funding like how is what's your what's your plan and i i ended up saying okay watch <laughs> hang on i'm going to do it and then you tell me what my business model was <laughs> hold on i'll <laughs> be right back be back in 6 months and i i wasn't i don't think i ever had the sense during all that of like Screw you I'm going to show them. they said it couldn't be done, I was just like, but it's more puzzlement. Like, no, look, it's right here. Why can't you see it? Look, right. look. Where, I'm, where I don't I'm poking. I don't
1: think I, I yeah, and I don't think it has to be I don't think that it has to be, it, it has to be um, uh, uh, oppositional. Right? That's not that, that that sense of we can see it. I can see it. It's right in front of me and i don't know why you can't see it but i'm just going to do the thing i can see and then you'll know i'm right <laughs> because right. It, we're still driven by this sense that i know i'm right and i don't know why you don't know i'm right but we're just going to have to move forward until you get it right like that that thing is very right. very much intensive
0: i'm i'm right that this is possible that there's a that there's a need here And there are enough resources to pull together to meet the need. And it's doable and it's doable by me. That's the feeling that I have. Like, no, you know, it's almost like uh, it's not quite this clear cut, but it's like a Lego kit. It's like, or it's like, this is the way I cook too. I have, you know, I get one interesting ingredient and then I think, oh, I, I could make That, you know, I can think of five dishes that could go in. Oh, one of those dishes I think I have all the stuff for. You know, if I just got one more thing and I'm like, oh, okay. If I get baby carrots, I can make that thing. And it's, it's seeing that it's visual in my head, right? It's like all of these, the pieces come together. And when the last piece shows up, the things, the blueprint for the thing sort of appears. It's really visual. And I think that's part of why explaining it to other people is so much harder than showing it to them.
1: (laughs) And I'm a non-visual processor. Like I don't, I don't process data visually. So my process for that is very different. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I want to, I want to pull us back a little bit. I know that you and I can both get really into rabbit holes of various kinds and I want to pull us back a little bit. So, so this idea that we have to, that we have to kind of move forward, whether the people around us think that's a good idea or not, think it's feasible or not, think it's viable or not, um, can understand what our what our vision is. Like that thing is the point to my mind. That's that danger point with power. So I'd like to to pull us around to talk about the power of intensiveness and charisma and that kind of force of will that we can get, even if it doesn't feel very forceful. You know, it's it's like. I'm just going to do this. Like, I'm sorry, you think it's not going to happen, but I'm just going to do this. And that's another way to express, you know, in me it comes out a little more forcefully, but I'm a nine on my scale. So like.
0: It's persistence. And it's, um, so I was thinking about this, about my, my interaction with sort of structures, infrastructures, and also about parenting my kid in that moment that the, the oppositionality is in the mind of the other people, right? My son is not saying, but I'm going to do it in order to make me crazy. He's saying, no, look, I can see that this is possible. Right. Right. He's Just stating a fact. And I'm, I'm not, I didn't create a sliding scale, accessible, uh, co- clinic funded by faith communities to, you know, put a finger in anybody's eye. I just was like look here's this here's all these pieces and they go together like this you know but they do right and i wonder it's uh, but i think on the so you know the story about galileo that as he's i don't know if it's true but that as he's being burned at the stake for suggesting that the earth goes around the sun instead of the other way around that the earth is not a fixed point <laughs> and they're about to light the, bridge, the the wood under him and he says but it moves, though. <laughs> right? Like, but I'm right. Right. Not, you know, history will condemn you, but, like, this is the truth I saw. But I can right. see it. Though. But I can see it. Like, it's. It, I don't understand why you people can't but, see what I can see. Yeah, charisma so, is an interesting why, – why do you say charisma? Uh, because In intensive – of-
1: because intensives often lead with charisma. Almost all of us are charismatic, whether we're quietly or loudly charismatic. And oh. um, and when we are able to move something forward to enroll anybody, you know, even if you're not able to enroll everybody, if you can get, you know, a third of the people or a quarter of the people you ask to participate in your project, right, that's the result of charisma. And I think charisma gets a bad rap, like power gets a bad rap in our culture and um, and we need to just start talking frankly about it. You know, some people can just get people on board. That's how it is. And because I
0: think there's a fear of manipulation. Well, right. So, seems-
1: and how is it? So, so this is the, these are the interesting questions of power, right? Let's assume for the sake of argument for just a moment that I'm right, that charisma is a part of how intensives get things done when nobody else thinks they're possible. And sure. let's assume that it's an inherent quality that we, that it, it sort of comes wired into our DNA in some way that, you know, psychology is not ready to examine yet.
0: Mm. What,
1: yeah. what is our responsibility with regard to that yeah. power? Right? Like if I have this power, but everybody in my life, this is my story, right? I, I'm told that I'm charismatic as an adult now by people I trust. Um, Not perhaps charismatic in the way that a mega church leader would be charismatic, but nonetheless, I have a a thing, right? That makes people interested, that makes people intrigued, that makes people want to engage with stuff that I'm presenting or engaging with. Um,
0: Okay.
1: My entire childhood and young adulthood, I was surrounded by forces that told me, that I was less than in some way or other. I was smart, that wasn't less than, but like that I had to use my intelligence to overcome all of the other deficits of myself. And that was the model that I operated under until extremely recently. Now, that means that I potentially had a power that I was unaware of, that I was not engaging, and that I could have been wielding irresponsibly because I didn't know I had it.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think consciousness of our effects on other people is is a piece of uh, of responsibility and maturity that comes really hard to a lot of people. It is it is hard to believe that you are powerful in those ways, right? And I, but I think there's another, gosh, this is one of those moments where I see about five ways this conversation could go. Um, but I, I want to, I want to throw in privilege. Mm -hmm. When you talk about, charisma, I want to throw in privilege. And I hear you saying you were not operating out of, there were many kinds of privilege you were not operating out of. Um, but I, I've been thinking about what is, the, about the relationship between privilege and power. And I mean, we could do a whole hour on that. Mm-hmm. But I think people mistake privilege for, uh, so So for me, I'll say, um, yes, I also have the experience that if I sit down and talk with one person about my idea, generally, they really, really want to help me. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, even, even my friends who couldn't quite see the thing were like, whatever you do, I know it's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. And let me know how I can but I don't see it. But I, I'm less, like, even with you trying to get me to provide some advanced material for this conversation, I'm, I, I like to work in person. I like to work in the, con- I'm much more confident in the connection, one-on-one with somebody, than sort of throwing material out there and not knowing who's receiving it. Mm-hmm. And I think that may be part of my sense of what you're talking about, that, I, like, that's how the superpower works right? I, can, I can't do it to you unless we're both engaged. So I do know that there's something that I'm doing, right? But I also but I know. Would, but I would that say that you're not,
1: I, I want to pause just for a minute because you use this phrase, do it to me. Yeah. And I think you're right that part of what it often is, not always, but part of what it often is, is that we create engagement. So you're not doing it to me.
0: Well, right. You've got the buy-in. You're we're engaging each other because we've both agreed to that. Mm-hmm. And then in the course of that, and in, in the in in the space opened up by that engagement, something can happen. Some sort of contagious enthusiasm for an idea or some compelling new perspective. You know, I you uh somehow over the internet got me to engage with you and your ideas and your energy. And now I'm sitting here having a conversation about what kinds of intensives there are and how am I an intensive? And I've adopted that lens into a piece of my thinking because I engaged with you, right? Mm -hmm. The idea travels along this, through that space that's opened up by personal, some kind of relationship um which is not the only way that ideas travel, right? But but that's something.
1: But I think it's one of the key components to power. So let's go there. How how do you find that power and relationship intertwine or intersect? Power
0: and relationship. I I think that brings me back to what I was going to say about privilege mm-hmm. in that um When I find that, so I, what I really like to do is find interesting collaborations. And I do find that people are often willing to collaborate with me on something or willing to, you know, put energy into something. Is that because my ideas are so great? Is that because I'm a charismatic intensive or is that because I have so many identities of privilege And so much borrowed secondhand privileged identity and connection that I'm going through the world on the easy setting. That when I say, hey, let's do this, people are like, oh, that person wants to do this. That seems reasonable. Am I? Right. So again, ethical question. Am I I wielding privilege when I think I'm wielding charisma or the truth or so that's one of the questions that I think comes up in any relationship.
1: And I, and I wonder if, if that's really a distinction you can even make, you know, if you have something that is true and you also have privilege to <laughs> spread it or share it because it's, right. you know, you know me, I live in liminality and, and the and side of the and or situation, right. I, When I look at that situation, I say, okay, you've got, you've got privilege and, and that's personal privilege and institutional privilege. And in addition to those things, you also have something that's true or helpful or needed in the world. And also you have intensiveness and the charisma that goes along with it, which is itself a kind of privilege if it's not shooting you in the foot. Right? Like intensiveness (laughs) is definitely a double-edged sword. But sure. But when we look at all of those things, I see you have all of them. It's a stack. It's not this or this or this that's making it possible. It's this and this and this that's making it possible. And and so do intensives who have privilege get a louder voice? Yes. Do intensives who have do rather do people with privilege in general, get a louder voice. Yes. So the question is, when we're when we're looking at that, because because privilege is a kind of power. Uh, it's not the only kind, but I think it is a kind of power. When we're looking at that, then the question is, how do we? How do we engage that in a responsible manner rather than doing what I think we often do on the political and social left and say, oh, well, power is bad. I'm going to disclaim power. I'm going to pretend I don't have any because I feel bad about having it. That doesn't get us anywhere.
0: Right. But I think there's another uh, maneuver that happens if you come a little bit toward the center, but still on the left. Um, The liberal problem paralysis is. I have all this privilege, so why can't I? Why haven't I been able to make the world all better yet? Oh, I guess I suck. Right? And I, you said privilege is a kind of power. I want to say privilege is also the opposite of power. It is, because any privilege that I have, the, uh, rights are powerful. Privilege means somebody gave it to me and somebody could take it away. I could, if some of us are privileged and some of us are not, I could lose my privilege if I step out of line, and so it's actually fear of losing privilege is a a block to power. So I think if you you know that you have the privilege, the riddle is how to use it sustainably or what to blow it on.
1: You know, you say it's a block to power. I don't. I don't know that I agree with you. I think for me. The places in my life where I have privilege are, in fact, doors open. The right that—that that is the power. It's the—it's the ability to to do something, and it's the fear that's the block, not the privilege. The privilege itself is power, but fear of what? If you have a fear of losing it, that's okay. the fear of losing it
0: is. The block, but the actual yeah. privilege is not a block. So, so, something I've seen happen several times in the last few years is really interesting to me. I'm sitting on the progressive end of the Christian spectrum, and I've been watching as one evangelical woman, one smart, uh, creative evangelical woman after another. Publicly, sort of smuggles herself out into progressive Christianity. Do you know the people I'm talking about?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and so it's it's the same. You sort of watch, you know, three or four of them, one after another, go through the same process. And it begins with saying, "Listen, I'm inside of this wonderful bubble where, where we all value each other, and we're all so kind to each other, and we're all, you know, middle class white people." And uh we love Jesus. And I'm starting to think that maybe our LGBT kids are lovable and God loves them, and we should be taking better care of them. And you watch her say that and work through the implications of it and start to say more of what she's seeing, and at some point the bubble kicks her out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden she's getting death threats, and she's her books are being yanked out of the big bookstore. And she's not feeling the love anymore. It's very cold and dark outside. And you get these like these columns of here's why you haven't heard from me in a year, because I've been on my couch crying because I lost everything Mm -hmm. because I said something kind about people who are different. Mm -hmm. Right? And then a year later they're like, Hey, I think I'm Episcopalian, which is when I start laughing. (laughs) Because (laughs) but the the what they've done is to develop some voice and privilege that's given to them inside that system essentially to keep them in line and they've used it to question the system until the point where they lose all of that privilege and power and resources support, and uh so it's like you can see the tipping point of where how far you can uh use privilege from inside the system of privilege to change it. And then when that, uh, that method runs out and you have to start over. Right. But
1: look at how powerful it is when people are willing to relinquish everything for what they find to be true. Right. Even in the moment of relinquishing, that privilege is incredibly powerful
0: that you have something so big to give up.
1: Mm -hmm. And I, and I think especially in the Christian church, there's a really interesting model, right? Because Jesus runs around the whole (laughs) New Testament being like, give Mm -hmm. up all of your wealth and follow me. And, and I think in our contemporary world, give up all of your wealth can mean cash, but more often it means social capital. It means it means influence oh, like it means privilege of all these different kinds right so when jesus says to these evangelical women who are coming to understand that lgbtq youth and adults by implication are lovable and should be should be treated as equals in the church right yeah. jesus is saying to them give up all of your wealth and follow me yeah yeah and sometimes it's cash, yeah. right? Sometimes she was married to a leader in the church who divorces her for saying that. And sometimes, sometimes it's not cash. Sometimes it's everything else.
0: Yeah, it's community, it's reputation, it's safety on the terms that they've had it.
1: Right. And, but what happens, and- the, the beauty of the internet is and- that what happens now when people do that, if they do it on the internet, is a whole bunch of us swoop in to be like, hey, we got you. Right.
0: <laughs> right. Right.
1: And I think, so now we're talking about power and community, which is beautiful. Because uh-huh. power and community and isolation is a really interesting thing to talk about. When when, when we look at power in the way that you and I have just been discussing it, it really relies on community, right? It relies on a bunch of people to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And that's not just privilege. It's also power. Like if, if I want to lead an organization and the people don't want to be led, I am shit out of luck. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And so, so when we think about power, as power holders, we are always, to some extent, beholden to the people who grant us the power that we are wielding.
0: As a as a leader, absolutely.
1: Yeah, as a as anyone who holds power, you know, part of the premise of this series is that I'm only talking to people who hold power because we. I mean, I don't know anybody who doesn't hold any power at all. Um, right. But but especially because the people that I'm most interested in having these conversations with have some kind of public or institutional power, right? We have, we, somewhere in our lives, we hold power um, that's, that's visible. And so we need to own that we hold that power and then we need to figure out how to use it well because we don't talk about it. It's really rare to go to high school or even college and get a class in power and how to wield it wisely and fairly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there are probably some more elite schools that talk about power and how to wield it, but I'm not sure the ethical part is there. <laughs> right? And I think that the, the, the conversation about power and leadership and ethics and power and leadership and community – is the important one because when you're leading and when you have power in any institution, you have power in engagement with other human beings.
0: Yeah.
1: So, so when you, when you look at power and community, what's the, what's the thorniest thing you see there?
0: Um I don't know. I I had a thought while you were talking and then it went away again. Um the thorniest thing about power and community. Uh, I think um I mean for me it's it's strange to hear what you just said, how you just described this category of people that has me in it, because the power that I operate with is so backstage. It's so, you know, I was trained. Uh, I got the training that, that we give to leaders of faith communities, but that's not my work. Um, I operate in faith communities, but the question of sort of who consents to that, you know, the whole congregation doesn't have to call me. Um, I'm operating in spaces where I'm sort of coming in sideways and I'm, I'm still figuring out how, what's the cleanest way to make that happen. The most honest way to, to make that power a little bit more visible and clearer. But it's, um, I don't know if this is going where your question was going. But I think the question of there's, you said, oh, if I'm the leader, but the community doesn't want to be led, I'm out of luck. And I think, sure, but then somebody's driving things in the community. And who is that? Right? There's practical power. There's functional power.
1: It's always an interesting question, especially in institutions that claim to be um, democratic like Unitarian Universalist churches do. It's always interesting to look at where the actual power resides. I am very fond of saying never underestimate the ladies with the fiber art.
0: <laughs> the knitting guild. Yep. yep. Yeah,
1: the the knitting guild or the sewing guild or whatever you want to call it, the they're usually elders, although um recent resurgences of handcrafts have have shifted that a little bit, but they're usually a, 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 at least a heavily represented as elders. And um and they usually make a lot of decisions about what's going to happen in the congregation. And somehow the decisions they make come to be either, even though in many cases, not a one person in that room has an elected position anywhere.
0: Right. So you can't replace them. You, can, you know, you just better like it or <laughs> wait for them to die. Right. Or, or go somewhere else.
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's the question, right? If you, and that's what I think is so important about talking about unconscious power. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I think if you asked most of those people if they have substantial power in the church, they would say no. Right. Or in the congregation.
0: It doesn't have to be a church. What, but what about though? Go ahead. What what about well what about the power, the question of like sweat equity? I mean, I've been involved in a lot of organizations where, honestly, you know, who decides how we're setting up for this event is who shows up to move the folding chairs. (laughs) And who decides we're having this event anymore is who's willing to show up every time and stack the folding chairs. Right? I mean, there's a, you know, if I put my heart and soul into this thing, then it's going to happen. And if I stop, it's not. And that's not, the, the leader can't make anyone do that or not do that. You can make them not do that. You can say we're, we're closing the soup kitchen or whatever. But, but in effect, as a leader,
1: I can, is- I can tell you what happens if you tell them that you're canceling coffee hour because nobody's signing up to bring treats and make coffee.
0: Oh, what happens?
1: There's outrage and uproar and they think that you as a leader are not doing your job sure but yeah that's what happens and and so there's there's this pressure on leadership either volunteer leadership or ordained leadership or you know hired leadership there's this pressure to make people want to keep doing the thing that everybody likes to think is part of the system, even though nobody wants to put in the work to make it part of the system and it's a volunteer run organization. And, and here we're in a very complicated conversation because, because congregations used to run off of, of, off of invisible labor from people who were supported by people um, who worked and now everybody works. And so because we're that's in a right. we've we've moved toward a more heavily capitalistic orientation culturally that's right. and as a result as of that are, we can't like if you want coffee hour hire someone to run it cuz i don't have the energy
0: i had that exact conversation so people are um, people are grieving the loss of that of what that invisible labor provided they mm-hmm. they're grieving that's what that backlash is but they're, they're grieving, grieving the in resentment process. Oh, that's a way to grieve. But <laughs> I, I, I was I about 10, 15 years ago, I don't know, a while back, I was in a congregation that was right in the middle of this cultural shift. And the rector turned to me and said, listen, you look like a sucker. Why don't you take charge of getting everybody to sign up for coffee hour? Mm. How about that? know. Why, why don't you take charge of Coffee hour volunteers. And uh, and this was a place where um, the coffee hour was famously competitive. It was, this mm-hmm. was a, the Episcopal church where worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness was sort of tipping over into the holiness of beauty, right? <laughs> like everything uh-huh. be excellent, that is how we we'll will know that God loves us and we love God. And if it's not excellent, we'll tell you. So some real old-school, high-end, you know, uh, hors d'oeuvre makers had been bringing pastries and snacks to this thing for a long time, and they were aging out. Mm-hmm. And they, but they were in teams, you know, I'm week one, you're week two, and mine is better than yours. And, and if a new person comes in, they get pecked down into the, their place in the pecking order, you know. And the people who, are, who had the power inside that tiny system were the people with the sweat equity who had been showing up and doing it. Right. I'm the queen of coffee hour because I will do coffee hour Mm -hmm. and they're getting old. They're not able to do it. So the priest says to me, Hey, why don't you be in charge of the coffee hour Rhoda? And I said, you know, do these pants make me look stupid? Uh, (laughs) You don't, you don't want to put me in charge of that. And they said, why not? And I said, well, because I'm generation X and I've already heard you say that people buy their own supplies for coffee hour, but you don't want to exclude anyone. So if, uh, if that's a hardship, if somebody wants to bring coffee hour snacks, but the expense of the supplies is a hardship, they can get reimbursed, right? Rector said, yeah. I said, well, what's the amount on that? What's the limit on that? What do you mean? Well, what's the budget? How much could you reimburse somebody every week? Oh, I don't know. Well, I said, figure it out. And I'll place a standing order at the Starbucks down the block to deliver that much refreshments, pastry and coffee every Sunday. That is what I will do if you give me this, this problem to solve. And right. I never heard another word about it. Closed her mouth and walked <laughs> off. Just was like, whoop, yep, nope. <laughs> We're not doing that. We could never do that. I'm like, well, no one is bringing food and you want there to be food and you have money to spend on food, but you would rather perpetuate this weird power game among all of these people who are really enjoying it except it has this this game has stopped producing enough pastry to feed the congregation so we need something we need a plan and she was just she just stared at me and she's like "You really are from another generation that is not i'm not ready to do that
1: yeah and and millennials, I'm I'm cusp Gen X millennial. I'm I'm in that Zenial Oregon Trail Trail yeah, yeah, yeah. space, and and I definitely identify more frequently and more completely with millennial attitudes and behavioral patterns. And I will tell you that millennials are definitely in the look. I don't want a committee meeting. I don't want a power struggle. I'm busy, and I have other things to do. Right. So if you want me to bring cookies, tell me how many of what size, and where to deliver them. <laughs> Yeah, if you want three dozen two-inch cookies, I will do that. But I will only commit to doing it once because I'm busy and I can't predict what my life is going to be like in two months. So don't ask me to do it again. Um,
0: but, but I will. But I will pick them up at Trader Joe's, right? I mean,
1: yeah, or I'll make them if I like to bake. Maybe I'll maybe I'll rage bake you some cookies. But like,
0: <laughs> make the expectation clear and concrete, and I will do a task. But we're not going to have a big emotional thing about who's the best at whatever.
1: No, this is not where I'm investing my emotional energy. I'm worried that Australia is on fire.
0: Right. (laughs) Right.
1: right. But the challenge with with that situation, with that conversation with the rector, right, is that the rector, it's not just about perpetuating the power situation. It's also, that's how that generation understands caring for each other. Yes. You care more if you make it homemade. You care more if you make it homemade and fancy. You care more if you make it yeah. homemade, fancy, and every month. And millennials are like, I care about you. I will make sure you have cookies. Do we really have to argue right. about how the cookies happen? <laughs> like, you're hungry? I fed you. If what you want is quality time from me, that's a different conversation. Then let's go out for
0: coffee. I'm still not cooking. Right. You put your finger on it. The invisible labor fountain has dried up this right. idea that that you're just going to be perpetually available to do whatever is not realistic it's not a thing
1: and it was never really there so, realistic but it's especially unrealistic now
0: but it, but it worked and now it doesn't you could run a community on that and now you can't and so and
1: and the reason you, you could run a
0: community on that
1: is because the institutions and systems of power were able to to demand that from people who had less power and wanted to feel like they had more.
0: That. Okay. So yes. And here's a, I want to talk about three generations of women in the Episcopal church, mm-hmm. maybe not three, in a row, but three distinct generations. So Episcopal church women was an organization that was founded. God, I'm going to get this wrong, but I want to say like in the, at the, turn to the beginning of the 20th century. And this woman, who's Julia, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name. I'm sorry, Julia, um, wrote letters to women in Episcopal parishes all over the country and maintained personal correspondence with people in each parish. And they started a practice of individually saving up their butter and egg money and sending it to Julia, one of these three named ladies. I'm going to look it up for you. Um, And they saved up and did things like they bought the Bishop of Alaska an airplane, right? So that he could get around and visit his -hmm. congregations more. That's the kind of power of this aggregation of little bits of crumbs of domestic power
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That because women couldn't be ordained, but they were like, "Look, we're making decisions about what the church values and supports. We're a powerful voting block. We're a cohesive bunch of people with interests, and we're gonna leverage the power that we do have to make something happen." Right? To so buy that's the that's bishop multiple airplane. One. Yeah, we, we want this to happen. It happens. Maybe we do scholarships. Maybe we do whatever. Um, then. There's that much later. There's the generation around the '70s and early '80s. So in 1976, the Philadelphia Eleven were the first women who were ordained as episcopal priests in the United States, and there was a big fuss about it. They did it without getting permission ahead of time, and then everybody had to sort out what that meant that it had happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the that kicked off a generation of women who went to seminary and got ordained as the very the sort of pioneer women in the priesthood who could wield that kind of power and some of the people who were the most unhappy about it were women who had been really powerful in the episcopal church women right because now they don't look very they don't make any sense they don't look very important right it's not men are priests and women do this women can be priests so now what are you but the women in that generation that I've known who were ordained early in the times when women could be ordained dealt with it by functioning in very masculine way, very stereotypically masculine ways, right? They all learned to drink scotch and maybe too much of it. Mm -hmm. Some of them smoke cigars. I'm not kidding. It's this very hard boiled, don't show any weakness kind of, I have to be strong. Um, I can run with the big boys attitude. And some of them are very powerful people and very, you know, did, made great steps. And it's clear that it was at a personal cost of, of sacrificing some kinds of softness and vulnerability and, uh, uh, softer presence that might have been their choice but didn't serve in that environment, right? That's that's generation two that I'm describing. Now I'm seeing women priests a little bit younger than me who came through seminary being trained by women priests and seeing them all around and not feeling like it was remarkable necessarily to be women in ministry. And they're out there on my Facebook feed, like wearing their clergy color with a little flowered dress and some cute boots Mm -hmm. and a flower in their hair. They're giving retreats about like, you know, drink your tea and meditate on the sunshine. They're, they're being girly in leadership and it's, it's shocking to me because I'm right in that middle point where and remember I'm not ordained. I didn't jump into that stream anywhere, but I'm I came in right in between that cultural shift. And so when I came in all of the people in authority, the women in authority were that sort of tough guy brand. And I'm watching just in sort of delight and wonder and sometimes alarm and concern as women, clergy in my denomination, reclaim their public femininity, vulnerability, spontaneity, this whole sort of, it's, and it's possible because of that intermediate generation that, that stood in the front line and took the heat, that they can, that, they, that these younger women can be taken seriously as they are. I hope that they can. I hope that that's true and that's happening. I think that's a the- really complicated
1: conversation. Speaking as someone who, um, who is read female and who is ordained yeah. in a different tradition, yeah. Um, yeah. I can tell you that the backstage conversations about the persistence of sexism are heartbreaking.
0: Oh, I know. Oh. And,
1: know. and that includes not being taken seriously by our colleagues. By, not just by our elder colleagues either, but by our peers, yep. and and certainly by our congregants, because my experience is that people's idea of what a minister is, quote unquote, is stuck somewhere in the mid nineteenth century.
0: Ah, uh, well, yeah,
1: and that's not just what a woman minister is, because Unitarian Universalism started Unitarians and Universalists started ordaining women in the in the mid eighteen hundreds.
0: I was going to say, you have a much longer running start
1: on this. We do. We got years <laughs> and we're over 50% women clergy now.
0: Yeah.
1: And, yeah. Um, and there are some interesting essays and research and books and stuff written about what happened. Because one of the things that happened is that it became women's work. And... Yeah, it's been and a then, struggle then to keep salaries high enough, and right. respect that's is right. has gone that's actually right. declined since women became a majority, sure. and sure. it's hard to pull the, apart what the, the sort of the cultural deterioration of religion as a brand has done yeah. versus what has happened because women are more of a force in our ministry specifically, but but these questions of intersecting power and privilege and cultural shift. Mm-hmm are, and, are and gendered, super complicated.
0: Gendered expression, expression of gender, right? Because mm-hmm. the word that came to me about this is gravitas. Gravitas? Yeah. Right? You, that's part of, I mean, it's not just that you have to seem masculine in some way, but it's that it's, it's a sort of, how do we, what, what do we think authority is going to look like? How mm-hmm. do we recognize One who speaks with authority.
1: I can tell you that in the Unitarian Universalist Church, authority is about 60 and balding with a beard and a little bit of a round face and a little bit of a belly and wears slacks and an Oxford shirt and a tie, but no jacket, except on formal occasions.
0: That is wildly specific.
1: It is. And I can further tell you that as a, transgender queer person in ordained ministry showing up quote looking masculine, that is to say on the days when I show up in slacks and an Oxford shirt and a tie (laughs) and usually a sweater because I'm cold, right? I don't get the same kind of respect as that other person I just described.
0: Do you get taken more seriously than you do on the days when you show up in a dress?
1: I've, rarely show up in a dress and when I show up in a, in a sari right.
0: then, a it, then we have
1: a whole other problem because it's all about you know people want to tell me about how their their aunt in the 70s went to an ashram and, and they, they can't hear my sermon I joke that when I have a bad sermon I wear a sari and then nobody remembers to talk about it at coffee <laughs> hour um, yeah. and it's unfortunately that's only a little bit not true <laughs> I mean, I, I don't usually choose my wardrobe based on how I feel about my sermon. But if I wear Indian clothes into Unitarian Universalist spaces, it's a very rare space where that doesn't become the primary topic of conversation. So yeah. when I was in a ministerial position where, for a variety of reasons, I was showing up in what we usually read as more feminine clothes. And I'm really, the longer I'm in this genderqueer space, the more I'm moving away from designations of feminine and masculine entirely because they don't actually mean anything. They're actually completely like invented categories that don't actually have a central meaning, either of them. Um, But when I show up in softer clothes, more flowy clothes, um, clothes with skirts, clothes that people associate with being a woman. I find that the thing that, that most often gets taken away from me is age. They think I'm young. That's happening less oh. now that I'm salt and pepper. Like my hair has gone mm-hmm. salt and pepper, and that helps to uh-huh. head that off. You cannot ask me when I graduated from high school and if I'm planning to go to college.
0: <laughs> the, I
1: mean, and And to be fair, people graduate from high school and go to college at all different ages, but But the assumption around that question is that I'm too young to hold an actual position of authority in the church. And people don't do that to me when I look like I have gray hair. Right. But because I'm now outside of the institution of parish work, I have a lot more latitude, A, to laugh people off. I don't actually care if you think I was ordained last week or If you think I was ordained in 2007, which is when I was actually ordained, or if you think that I'm, you know, working my way toward ordination and I'm an aspirational youth, like I I don't actually care. (laughs) I don't need to care because your church hired me and I came in and I gave my sermon and now it's
0: coffee hour and I'm done. (laughs) But, right. So, I mean, part of what you're talking about is projection is people's predictable projections and how much we choose to lean into them or use them or predict them and how much we choose to, uh, let that be the business of the person doing the projecting. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a question of what kind of effectiveness you need to wield in what right. context. And
1: how can you leverage their projection? Yeah. Because if you're going to project on me, then as far as I'm concerned, um, pretty much everything is fair game. That's not actually illegal. Like if you are going to think that about me and not ask and not engage me, Uh I'm, I might decide to use that to my own ends, whatever my own ends are. And, and I'm a little bit too Gryffindor um, to do that entirely. Like my own ends will almost always have an intended good outcome. I have an enormous number of friends who are Slytherin, including a number of my clergy colleagues, and um, they're maybe not as bound
0: by that as I am. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting.
1: Um, they're more willing to be a little more Machiavellian than I am.
0: But, but I do think. I mean, I do feel like people's fa- other people's failure of imagination is not my obligation. Right. But right. <laughs> But But we have power, and what's our job? And if you have that intensive passion for something you can see ought to be a certain way,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and you can see how uh, the path to that leads through uh, either either fixing people's failure of imagination or letting them sit in it. Right. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's only spoon theory, right? You've only, there's only so many things you can decide to put your energy into ever or in a day and maybe educating this person about something they haven't thought about is not on your list today. Mm
1: -hmm. And that's absolutely, you know, part of my decision when I decide what clothes to wear out of the house or especially if I'm going to do, um, you know, a presentation or a talk or a, a training part of my decision is what kind of clothing is going to um, support or impede the kind of power I want to wield. And part of it is how much energy do I have to navigate people's misconceptions about me based on what I wear. Right. Right. So I want to draw us to a close because we're coming up on an hour of wonderful conversation. Um, And. (laughs) and I have learned from doing a few of these interviews now that we could go on and on and on and on, and then I'll just have to edit out all kinds of great stuff. So um, we'll save anything else for maybe a future conversation. It's been such a pleasure to have you here. Do you have any last words? Um, I know you had a, a particular question that, that you liked that you wanted to engage and I'm pretty oh, sure we didn't get there.
0: No, I had a whole uh, set of ideas I was thinking about. And that's not what we talked about. And that's fine. Um, because, you know, it, the engagement, the space of engagement is where the unpredictable thing happens. And that's where the interesting stuff is. I think, mm-hmm. um, I, the question that I liked that you asked was, um, what's the one thing you would want people to know about power and the really two second version of my, 20 minutes of rant on that is you have power you're not using Mm. and you might want to look into what's stopping you there. That's my, my two minutes from that, my two seconds from the developmental trauma therapist.
1: (laughs) That's an entirely other can of worms that could take, you know, an entire a podcast series to unpack, but yes, I absolutely. You know, there are so many times when we look at power and either say, "I don't want it." Um, you know, the joke in seminary is is that when we feel the call, we say to God, "Here am I, Lord, take someone else." Um,
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Hmm. And almost everybody that I have known who is ordained has had that moment of, I feel the call and no, I'm not doing it and go away. And of course that doesn't work, but we try.
0: Okay, here's here's one more thing I was going to say, which is that when when we think about power, I think most of us think about it in a really monolithic, binary way. Like they have power and I don't. You know, them, the them, Mm -hmm. power. Or, Or if, like as you said about the seminary joke, Maybe I'm being invited to become them that have power, and I have all kinds of ideas about what they're like. But mm-hmm. like, power is a thing; you have it or you don't. And that kind of power is like uh, policy making, control over macro environments, either um, either holding office or um, massive resources. So that that's one. But that I decided that wasn't the power I would want to talk about at all. Uh Because for me, the power that's interesting is the capacity to act. Uh And you can have that at any scale, right? The, the, the question of, you know, does Bill Gates have power that I don't? Yes. But Uh there are a lot of things I can choose. And that's where my curiosity is these days. And I, I, I don't, I don't want that to, to erase the real questions. It's not like the secret, like, oh, if you just have the right attitude, your whole life can be perfect. That's not mm-hmm. what I mean. But, but we have more power than we think we do. Yeah, And it's a muscle you can practice and build.
1: And that discernment that allows you to see, I understand, be aware of your power um, is also the discernment that allows you to wield it both well and responsibly effectively and responsibly. Right on. So where can they find you online? If people are intrigued by what you're doing or want to um, contribute to whatever revolution you're cooking up next, where will they find you?
0: I wish I had a better answer to that. Um, I'm on Facebook, which is terrible, but there I am. Um, And I send out, do you know Tiny Letter? Mm Mm-hmm. I have a tiny letter, which people can subscribe to. And maybe I can send you that subscription link and you can put it in the whatever, show in the show Yep. Yeah, somewhere. Um, but its it may turn into something else right now. It is a space for me to have uh, extremely occasional thoughts about, uh, I don't promise any particular topic. But that's that's sort of where the ground zero of where I'm cooking whatever I'm thinking right now. So I'll awesome. send you that.
1: Excellent. We'll definitely make sure that gets into the show notes. And um, and if there ev- evolutions of your projects and you want to share them with with listeners um, as as this podcast grows and evolves. This is our first season, um, and I'm not. I'm not entirely certain how many seasons I'm going to do, but there seems to be a lot of interest and I can think of a lot of interesting people (laughs) to add to the roster. So um, it may go on for a bit. So as things evolve for you, obviously, if you are interested in having um, having me mention, oh, yeah, our guest from from season one is doing this project or that project, let me know, of course. Well, thank you very much you. For, for being on the show, for coming and being present and thoughtful and vulnerable and for making us your first podcast. That's always a, a fun experience to see what it's like when you, when you get to talk um, extemporaneously about something that you find interesting or something that matters to you. So I well, appreciate I you. It. Be-
0: it makes me want to do more. Thank you.
1: Excellent, excellent. Then we did a good job. <laughs> all right. Well, um, thank you so much, and uh, and we will see all of you. This has been the Power of Pivot podcast with uh, guest Laura Jackson. We've been talking about um, power and community and um, congregational dynamics and a variety of other ways in which we can be thoughtful and ethical about engaging the power we may or may not know we have. We will see you all next time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.